10 can phone Mike and Armand Joe Queez We the ones that you can depend on To bring the voices from the inside out Lie down but they not locked out No filter over here Check what we be talking about Feet up in the trenches Bop while you're on the fences Metal detector before you enter Shaky medical and see your stitches They be pushing their weight around Educate Didn't have the time to wait around Taking classes while they played around That's what we call staying down That's what we call staying down That's what we call staying down now the Tin Can Phone Podcast, and as part of that group, a prison-based podcast organization, we've invited our friend collaborator Blue to be supported by people from mutual education to make these pamphlets, which are available at pforme.tumblr.com. So um, in support of Blue and the different circumstances surrounding Blue's context, we created a pamphlet uh, about the non-humanist jury convictions, and now Lou will use the Tim Can Phone platform to uh, talk about that with his guest. So, Blue, take it away. Nice. Hi, I am the community manager over at Art Design Exchange in Portland, and I'm here to kind of bring awareness through some awesome resources, not only an amazing team that we got together to work on this pamphlet that did just a beautiful job um, that we will then give out to the world and try to help people sort of understand what this issue is, but we also have Eliza Kaplan, who is kind of like the leader of this fight within the legal realm. So we have this grassroots swell that we're trying to create, which she's a part of. And then as we fight through the legislation, um, she's kind of leading the battle and supporting people and advocating for people in that area. And I've had some great talks with her in the past. She was on one of our IGTV shows for Art V, our our live art show at ADX. Um, but really what this is, is about just sharing information that I think when anybody hears it, they get it that it's not right and they get that it's not fair. And we're gonna try to give you a little bit more context and understanding. And we have our other guests here as well. We're on nice. the video here. Thank you so much. Are you doing? Terrence. So this is uh, Terrence Hayes. And he's had an experience with this uh, Ramos issue and with the entire subject, and he'll be able to share his his story as well. Thank you so much for coming. Absolutely, awesome. So I guess just to throw it out there, yeah, we are live on IGTV. No pressure, that's right. Natural, right? We're live on IGTV for ADX, and I hope the followers are engaging. You feel free to invite people if you want. And also with Tin Cam Phone, we had an amazing uh, time with Tin Cam Phone last night talking about their first season. They got like a big placemaking grant and mm -hmm. they're doing the same podcast that they did on the inside and now yeah. they're doing it on the outside and trying to raise awareness and just show people like, hey, we are just human beings and uh, like welcome us back. Right. No, absolutely. And welcome other people back and like see us and hear us. So, um, Elisa, can you just kind of give us a, a framework for what we're talking about in terms mm -hmm. of the Ramos decision? What sure, that is? sure. In uh, 1934, Oregon had a legislative referral that the people voted and put on the books in our constitution, our state constitution, a provision that says we can have non-unanimous juries, meaning in felony cases, so serious cases, um, that if a jury... We all think of it as being 12, but really what we did was we added this provision that said 10 is enough, 10 of 12 is enough, 11 out of 12 is enough, and that we could convict people based on the, the split jury verdict. And the only other state that had this at the time, louder, 
The only other state that had this at the time was Louisiana. They had it beginning in the late 1800s. And just a little background, and no other state has ever had it. It's just Louisiana and then Oregon. When uh, Louisiana's law went into effect, it was a reaction to slavery ending. And it was clearly documented as a way to have black people go to prison, convict more people, and then have them do the work that former slaves did. And it's fully documented. And then a bunch of years later in the early 30s, I mean, in the late 30s, no, in the early 30s here in Oregon, our law was created and based in discrimination as well. And ours was um, following about a 10 year humongous rise of the KKK in Oregon through the 1920s. Um, there were also, that was happening. And then at the same time, there were a lot of immigrants coming in from Italy, from Eastern Europe, mostly Catholics and Jews. And so the combination of this, these two things kind of all came together in the early 30s during a very big trial that took place, a Jewish man, a gangster, Jewish gangster, those existed back then. And, <laughs> and it was a trial for murder and the jury couldn't reach an opinion. And the, the news the media at the time, the newspapers, right, followed every single aspect of this case. It was huge. And there were tons of papers um, throughout the Portland and Columbia County areas, but also around the state that talked about our jury system. And paper after paper, especially what is today the Oregonian, editorialized with tons of xenophobic comments and racist comments. And it just built up to a head that when the jury could not decide, could not convict this man of murder, they settled on a lesser charge and a fine and people kind of lost it. And it led just a few months later to a special election where we put into our constitution this provision of non-unanimous juries for conviction. And we became the second state in the country to put this horrible law um, you know, in place and it lasted for 85 plus years until April 20th, not, what year is it? 2020, <laughs> so just a year ago, the United States Supreme Court finally, finally, finally struck down the horrible racist law. It's important to know that Louisiana on their own through a referral had already gotten rid of the law a couple years earlier. So the, the Ramos versus Louisiana, came down in April 2020, and it made it so every single case going forward in any state, but here in Oregon was the only one using this horrible law, that we um, can no longer convict anyone of a non-unanimous jury. So I guess the fight's over. The fight is not over. And, you know, um, what's really interesting about, about legal stuff, right? So legal stuff says, okay, we changed the law. The U.S. Supreme Court said this horrible law is discriminatory. The U.S. Supreme Court, every justice that addressed the history of this rule also was very clear that this law was, both laws in both states were based in discrimination, were about perpetuating white supremacy and xenophobia. And I mean, numerous justices in their opinions wrote about this history. And yet, even though we know this practice is unconstitutional based on numerous legal theories, 
and that it was, everyone agrees it's discriminatory. The law says we change the law and you move forward. So anyone going forward or anyone who still had like their, they were convicted of a non-unanimous jury, but were still in their what we call direct appeals, their first round of appeals. And then going forward, we cannot use this law. So about 400 folks were in this process. They get automatically went back to the beginning, vacated, we call it, back to the, the district attorney in their circuit courts, in their counties, and the district attorney can decide, am I gonna retry them? Am I not gonna retry them? So that's automatic and then going forward. But what the law doesn't automatically allow under Ramos, even though we know unconstitutionality, no discriminatory intent, it doesn't go backwards. So obviously we had the law for 85 plus years. There's gotta be a lot of people that were convicted <laughs> with non-unanimous juries. And what about that? And that's why the fight continues because on so many levels, if we don't give justice and a right to what I always say a do-over, um, basically anyone who can prove that they had a non-unanimous jury should be able to say, my conviction is unconstitutional and I, wanted, I get to go back and the DA can look at my case again and make a decision about what they wanna do. And that is the only way to one, offer you know, what's fair and just to the people who have these non-unanimous jury convictions. But also if we're ever gonna have any belief in our justice system moving forward for all people in every context, we have to do the work to dismantle you know, the wrongs of the past and the injustice of the past and the racism of the past. If we don't do that, then what are we saying to everybody going forward? Okay, you don't have a non-unanimous jury, but there'll be something else, right? If you don't take responsibility for the past injustice and do what's right, then you know, you're not really, you're not really fixing the problem, right? And so even though that opinion came out a year ago, we have a few hundred people that have filed cases, claims in, in, an, in a type of legal action called post-conviction relief. And those people are saying, hey, apply this retroactively to me so I can get my justice and my constitutional right to a fair trial. And we are in that right now. And that's been over a year. And then the Supreme Court, just a couple, was that just last week? Two weeks ago, feels like a hundred years right now, but just two weeks ago, the US Supreme Court chimed in again. And they said, under federal law, we don't think this Ramos versus Louisiana should be retroactive. And they apply a, a test. They went so far to say that it doesn't apply, that they got rid of their entire test. Yeah, so they had this test on the books for years yeah. saying, oh, we can use this test to find retroactivity and they never use it. And here's this perfect case that fits exactly into their legal test. And rather than grant retroactivity for a few hundred people in Oregon and what they think is about 1500 people in Louisiana to give them the justice they deserve, they just said, forget it. We're never, nothing's ever gonna be retroactive again. They got rid of the entire test. The good news, however, is that the good news, however, is that this is that was under federal law. So we still have hope here in Oregon because we're gonna 
bring this all the way to the Oregon Supreme Court, and they're not obligated to follow that second court ruling called Edwards versus Benoit. They're not obligated to follow. In fact, in Edwards, the Supreme Court says in footnote six, <laughs> carefully read, right, opinion, says state, states, you can apply whatever retroactivity test you want. This is just what we think under federal law. Under state law, go do what you want. So all these people that have been filing over the last year, it feels really bad because it feels like this highest court should have done the right thing. I don't know why we think they should do the right thing because they rarely do the right thing for marginalized communities, right? Never mind defendants um, and people who are incarcerated and black people and I could go on. They rarely do the right thing, especially the current very conservative court. But it is, it feels really bad to all of us, right? Those affected and also those that do the work in the, on the legal side. But we've never argued in all of these cases over the last year, we've never argued that we're, we're counting on that. We've always argued that Oregon should take care of Oregon and our Oregon courts should not just follow that blindly. They should, they should look at all of the people affected by this and let them tell them that they don't deserve, right? Let's make our court decide this issue. That's and that's where we are. So we're filing away, we're, we're not, spending too much focus on Edwards, it was expected. And we're just moving forward with these cases. Um, and here's the extra piece. Um, the extra piece is that our attorney general, um, Ellen Rosenblum, has argued from, even though she says publicly, this is a racist and discriminatory law and it's terrible for Oregon and all that, she still filed a brief in support of Louisiana in Ramos versus Anna, basically arguing that we shouldn't get rid of non-unanimous juries. And then in Edwards versus Benoit, this retroactivity ruling, she argued that it shouldn't be retroactive. So here she is, the, the respondent in most of these post-conviction cases, right? And she has another opportunity to do the right thing, which she hasn't done yet. For Oregonians and for our for their rights, right, and for a fair, just legal system, and she is the respondent in all of these cases. She could stipulate direct retroactivity. She could not fight the retroactivity part of people's claims, and basically, for the last year, every single case she has fought on retroactivity grounds and also on other legal procedural grounds. She has, she's doing, her office is doing everything in her power to not let these cases proceed. And that's where we are. And, you know, it would be great if she got on board. It would be great if she practiced what she preaches. It would be great if she stopped hiding behind the law. And it would be great if she used her leadership. She's an elected official. And it would be great if she didn't just do what she's told and actually took on the responsibility of, of joining what, what should be an easy, an easy ask as far as I'm concerned. That's Yay! amazing. Thank that's you. the whole, <laughs> that could be the whole thing. That's it's beautiful, it. but we have more. And <laughs> I just want to bring up a few things. I mean, it's an already problematic system with, right. It already does damage. We have innocence projects all over the country who find people and get them out based on erroneous convictions when it's a unanimous jury. This is even more problematic, 
and it's exacerbated by some other things in Oregon that I'm not going to go into, but I think it's just, it's amazing to see. I'll never forget this guy, Strom Thurmond became like liberal, you know, like it was like (laughs) the most conservative guy in the world. And then he kind of like, he he pivoted, like Mm -hmm. Ellen could change. She's also progressive. She's been a leader against Donald Trump nationally. She she brought everyone together. She, you know, she claims that that's her agenda. And yet on something that, you know, to be the leader and fight against Donald Trump's policy, that doesn't take courage. You know, this takes a little courage and that we're not seeing. You know, to, to be a little bit more nuanced and a little bit more really looking at the, the issue and the cases and the people affected. Um, people don't want a free get out of jail card. They just want a fair process. Yeah. And I have a yeah, my curiosity, because I think in the culture concept of tin can phone, like, like pr- prisons is a for profit industry. And so the system a lot of the systems we're discussing is like that they're in place for a reason. And in fact, like you described in Louisiana originally, it's just like to replace the abolition mm-hmm. of slavery. So, and I am learning in this moment from you and I'm curious, um, like what is the political motive that you could surmise? Yeah. You seem to have more details. You know, what's really interesting is I moved here about 10 years ago and I remember learning about this law. And I've practiced in many, many states um, in my career, and I could not believe this law existed. As a criminal defense lawyer or anyone who knows does anything in criminal law, if two people on your jury thinks that the government didn't prove their case, or one person, or they think you're innocent, yet, <laughs> I mean, that sounds like reasonable doubt to me, right? So, you know, I when I first moved here and learned that, I was like, put that on my list. I need to figure this out. I need to understand what this is, right? And that's a lot of how I approach issues, I guess, because I'm an academic and a practitioner. So I'm always like, what's the history? How did this happen? How do we get here? You know, to me, those are really important questions to ask. I think this issue is like so many in Oregon. And again, you know, I've only been here 10 years, but what I see is a place that wants to say that they care deeply about racial justice and it's progressive and all that stuff. And there is a lot of that. But I think that there's a real lack of interest in really really going deep and talking about the issues and talking about our horrible, horrible history. This state has such a horrible white supremacist history. Um, and it certainly has come out more in different ways over the last few years. But there's a culture of not talking about um, on, on all sorts of issues, but especially people are uncomfortable. And, you know, maybe because I'm a New York City girl <laughs> and I just showed up and I was like, what the heck is going on here? You know, sometimes maybe it takes, you know, outsiders to come in, become insiders and push issues. So if that's, you know, what I, what I did on this and I'm really proud of that. But I also feel like, so there's that whole, we don't like to deal with this stuff. I think that's more than political. I think You know, we're seeing more over the last year an interest like for politicians to talk about these issues, but still there's a real lacking in really the nuance and the depth of talking about racial justice issues. And I hope we get better on that on all fronts, right? In all parts of our society and culture here. And I guess the other part of it, and these are, I'll just tell you what the attorney general says, and she's not wrong, right? If we go back and look at, you know, a few hundred cases of past convictions, 
what is it going to do? Is it going to cost a little money? Absolutely. It's going to cost money. And we just came out of COVID and all the supports are backed up and that's part of it too. There's all these practical things, money, time, the courts are clogged, et cetera, right? So there's those issues and those are real, right? There's also a lot of cases that the evidence is so old that it's not gonna be found and then what will happen, right? Um, and then third are the victims involved in cases, right? Well, that's huge, right? This is gonna affect victims who thought that this, their cases and their situations were settled and done, right? And so, you know, what I say to those things is yes, yes, and yes, that, that is true. There is no doubt about that. However, that doesn't excuse, um, you know, not addressing these issues. Yeah, it's gonna be hard for everyone. And the people with non-unanimous convictions, you know, it has affected their lives um, and their families. And people have been in prison and not seen their kids grow up and miss so many aspects of the lives that all of us take for granted because they had a non-unanimous jury conviction. And if their case was any other place besides Oregon or Louisiana, they would not have been convicted, right? And it's just too easy to, to like blame it on, you know, these practical or evidentiary or victims. You know, I've done a ton of innocence work as a lawyer and I've never met a victim in a case who didn't want the truth and didn't want fairness and justice in their trial. So I think it's a little bit hiding behind some of these issues. Victim, the victim community is not a monolith. They have all different views and opinions. And it's really important that we don't not justice because of practical issues. And yes, because um, it's too, gonna be too upsetting. Well, it's pretty upsetting that we've imprisoned hundreds and hundreds of people um, and ruin their lives based on a non-unanimous jury conviction. It's not a competition. These are issues that affect people on all parts of the criminal justice system, but it doesn't mean it's not the right thing to do. Thanks, Eliza. It's heartbreaking, honestly. And I wanna give Terrence the next chance to speak, but I just wanna just, I guess, identify, <laughs> I don't know, just that it's scary. It's really terrifying to think that people would put pragmatism in front of what's right and uh and your lives yeah we looked into the numbers and uh we found that if we took the 300 cases that have been filed or three it's, less. it's less than 300 yeah. cases in oregon and we were to look at what percentage of the total number of cases brought each year that it would be about 1.5 percent so this idea of this stress especially since you're we're talking about deals sometimes and sometimes retrials or sometimes mm -hmm. just letting somebody go um, because they've served all their right. time we have yeah. people that have served all their time so what's really going on you know and, and and we might not know but we do know that i think also about what you said about having the conversation that's what we're doing here and i think the people watching through adx and the people who are walking watching through tin camp phone you are the people who we need and, and you'll tell somebody else and maybe they'll tell somebody else. But I believe that Portlanders are ready to have the conversation. I don't think it's that people don't want to have the conversation mm -hmm. or don't want to like embrace these human beings and say, come back and be a part of this community or we don't want you. I don't think that's Portland. Like, I really don't. I think, or and Oregon, I know this is about Oregon in general. Yeah, anywhere in Oregon. I think, I think we're ready to say, let's restore people. Let's give people a chance to be a part of this 
society and, and welcome people back. And I just think that's really important. So anybody who's watching it, that's the, that's the stance from which I'm looking at this entire thing. Terrence, thank you so much for coming. Um, I'm so glad you're here. Thank you. Um, do you want to just share a little bit about your experience with this issue? Yeah, yeah. So in 2004, I was convicted of a non-unanimous jury decision, and interestingly enough, by um, Ellen Rosenblum. So my story is unique in that the same person that we're asking to fix it is the same person that I preserved the issue on the trial level and she rejected. Right. So when people ask questions about why, 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 she has to answer for the part she's played in that, right? She's not been our attorney general the whole time and being able to say, hey, I'm just going to do what the law says. She has actually participated in offending people. And we don't know what number, right? No, I don't think nobody stopped and said, how many people can sign her off as a trial judge? And so for me to, to go through that process, actually, even on the trial level, preserve the issue, I remember the way she responded to it, almost like, we know this is going to be an issue one day, but today it's not, right? The law is still on my side. So, I mean, me and my wife was talking about it. Like, she remembers when my lawyer argued it, and she was like, well, I don't know how this is going to turn out, but today I won't be the person that touched it, right? And so she is still taking that position, and now she knows how it turned out. She understands that the, that the history, and, and she's an intelligent woman, so I believe you know, as a judge, she knew the history then. She don't take me as a woman who missed much, right? Really intelligent, really aware. But I think that politics, politicians do what politicians do, right? And I think now she she's been able to hide on a progressive side from an organ standpoint historically, and now she's in a little bit of trouble. And so I went and I did 13 years under that. I continue to fight that and continue to get rejected in the courts. I continue to um, preserve my issues and now the Supreme Court, along with our attorney general, is saying that don't matter, right? And for me, it is it is really personal, not just because I did the time, but because she was the judge, right? And so when I plead to her to rectify the offense, it's because she was my offender. She was the person that offended me legally, and now she is refusing to touch it, right? She's now hiding behind her position. And so when we talk about Ordonians and all that doing the right thing, she is a voting right? And until Portlandians especially stand up and say, well, this is the county she came out of. These are the people she offended and we're not going to stand for that and we're going we're gonna to press her until she honors and does what right. I think we're in trouble, right? I mean, my story, I'm, it's prototypical for me. That decision that, the, that, that, the, that those guys made 100 years ago, right? 70 years ago, intentionally for individuals like me, she continued to honor those decisions in her power. And even now she does. So when I look at it, I just, it's just, it's just ridiculous for me, mm -hmm. right? And so now my call is to Oregonians to, to do something, right? We take to the streets every time these type of offenses happen or police kill a young black man, we take to the streets. Do y'all not understand that the lives of young black men have been lost through that decision? I went in jail at 20, I came home at 33. I wasn't the same person. Right, and she had the total ability to do what was right then and refused to, and can do it now. Now she has an opportunity to give me a shot to 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 do this in a fair manner, and she still refuses. Still considering my life not worth the stroke of a pen. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, y'all, that's what it is. I don't, you know, we do talk about it, and the, out of all those things you listed, I care about the victims, 
because I care about the stress and the trauma that would be associated. Mm -hmm. But I was a victim also. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. And I have to be included in that conversation. And to not be included, yep. you know, people often ask, well, you know, I see stuff all the time after I do this. Like, did you do it? We're not even talking about dealing with guilt and innocence. We're no. talking about constitutionality. Did they have a right to convict me? And if, like you said, if a victim wants justice, then they have to want it on all ends of that spectrum, right? Same they have thing. to want to make sure that I was properly convicted, that the state who bear the burden to prove my guilt did their jobs correctly and didn't rely on a racist legal legal law. And that's what they did, right? At the end of the day, you have hundreds of people in Oregon that was convicted under a law that was intentionally racist, and we are doing nothing about it. So it's not just a call to her, it's a call to us who vote her in, right? Where, where Portland goes, Oregon goes. Let's just be real about that, right? Where Portland goes, Oregon goes. And so when, when I see um, Black Lives Matter signs and I see restorative justice, I also see that people are overlooking some of the most horrific parts of that offense, right? My life does not matter at this moment, in my opinion, the judge wrote And she may disagree with that, but she has the power to restore my life to a, at least record rise to restore it to a sense of justice and righteousness. But she's choosing not to do that. And, and so, you said once up. when we were speaking together, and it sticks in my head always, that like racism isn't just, you know, people KKK wearing right, their. Right. Right. their white hats right. it's like this is deep in right. and this is the stuff that this is the stuff that people don't want to deal with right Be but it's it's just as bad because and especially because you can't see it in the same right. way right Absolutely. So, it's so I agree. true and that's why i say oregonians and portlandians right because ultimately your foremothers and forefathers voted this stuff right and now you have the responsibility to demand justice for the people that they voted in to offend, right? It is totally within the voters' power and our legislative power and our judiciary to rectify this. But you guys actually control all of that, right? You control every aspect of that through y'all voice, through y'all voice, and through y'all vote. And I think that if, if Oregonians decide that this atrocity must be rectified, then she'll pay a lot more attention, right? The people have to demand. When mm -hmm. we was done with, with Trump, we took to the streets to get rid of Trump, mm -hmm. right? Now we see the same behavior legally and publicly and we're not taking to the streets about it. We're not demanding change. And for me, you know, it's, it is discouraging when Oregon knows its racist history. You guys are out here doing all the work to change it. And this one is quietly being ignored. And it's one of the most horrific ones, right? You have generations of young black men um, and extremely the BIPOC community, I think in particular, mm -hmm. that took deals and they could have been totally innocent, right. but they knew all it right. took was 10. And when right. they looked at that jury, 12 didn't look like right. And sadly, we never <laughs> kept any records. Right. And so, you know, the numbers actually of people who are filing is really low. And so that should make it even easier for her, right? Mm -hmm. Or courts or whoever. Yeah. But but it also shows you how much we did not want to deal with this. That right. We didn't keep record. When I started researching this, <laughs> I was like, okay, we're going to go through right. all of the records from the beginning. Right. And we're going to see how many people at least had a non-unanimous jury conviction. We'll never know the numbers we pled, right? Right. Um, never, right, right. Never. But maybe we can at least get the numbers. And I, then I learned very quickly, there's no way to tell because there was no requirement that we pull a jury. There was no requirement that we kept statistics on this. 
in Louisiana, they always kept it. So they have amazing data and they could prove in 10 seconds how racist mm. the law applied, you know, over all their years. Right. right. We, we can never do that. Um, Louisiana, 80% of the population that is filed under non-unanimous juries is black. Yeah. yeah, and they have a diff they have different demographics. Right. So, but you know, there. But I think it's important to yeah. identify that that Terrence was Terrence was talking about the fact that this has racist origins. That's what we've been talking about, but it's also paid dividends. Like it's done Absolutely. exactly what it was meant exactly. to do, and right. we have both, the numbers in both states. Right. This law has done exactly what was intended. Right. Both and Oregon's demographics make it even more interesting. So not only have we convicted people, right, in a disproportionate way, just based on our, you know, demographics alone, but we've also said to a jurors, I mean, if I was on a jury, right, I'm a white woman, if I was on a jury and my voice didn't count, I would be out of my mind, right? Imagine if you're the one person on a jury who is a person of color, and that's normal, even in Multnomah County, Right where we have that's our most diverse population. <laughs> the likelihood of you having one person, especially historically, right on your on your jury is is slim. And then imagine if that person or those two people's voices are the ones that don't count. So we're not only we not only this law not only played out exactly as planned for defendants of color, right? It also played out exactly as planned here in Oregon with our demographics to jurors of color. And, you know, it's like, there's no excusing it. There's just no excusing it. And we have no real record. So all we have are the people who have been filing and numbers are really low. Um, and as Terrence said, do you know how many young black men probably agreed to a plea deal because their lawyer said to them, you don't have a chance. We only need 10 and you're never going to get 10. And already we plea 97% of all of our cases. And then that happened over 97%. and over. 97%. Yeah. And that already happened. You know, that happened to so many. I hear stories all the time. I'm sure you do that all the time of people, but like, how are they even going to prove that? Right. So when we look at there's those, and that's probably tons of people, right. And they'll never be able to prove it. And they should bring their cases. They should they should bring their cases and, and see what they can do. But then we have under 300 people, right, that have filed that can prove it. That's it, right? Well, you know, if we, if we allow retroactivity over the next year, there's a two-year filing deadline, deadline from, from Ramos. So we have less than another year. That's just post-conviction, right? We have one, less than one more year. Let's say another 200 people, which is not going to happen. But you know, I'm the my office is the one keeping all the numbers right, 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 right. and watching all of these cases. There's no way there's going to be that many more. But let's say there are. We're still less than 500 people. Who cares? You know, what is the really the numbers are really low. You know, the I, I really appreciated when you sent me some of the demographics and seeing like six percent of Multnomah County is is yep. black and. 34 or 38 percent something around yeah, there so basically we did the depth we did the numbers we did the race numbers <laughs> for all that those 400 people that were on direct appeal so they automatically got ramos protection they went back and we did the demographics on the less than 300 people that have filed post-conviction and in those it's not scientific because 
you, we can't go back and do a sampling and all that. Like, but basically in the 400 and the 300, it's disproportionately um, against people of color, blacks, Latinos, Native Americans. And not in a, not in like a subtle a way, way. <laughs> like in a, way, in a ridiculously brutal and, way. And by the way, that makes sense because we already have studies in Oregon that show that we, that at every single stage of the criminal justice system, from arrest to sentencing, we disproportionately um, um, sentence, arrest, everything, right? Every single aspect that we have a different system for people of color than we do for white people. And that, there was a huge study in Multnomah County just three years ago that looked at every single thing. There was a huge study in 1994 of the state, every single thing. And I was reading that 1994 report the other day for something I was working on. And I read it before and I just read it and I was like, oh my God, this says, this is what we need to do. Right. And we did nothing, <laughs> you know? And then the 2016 report came out about Multnomah County. It said, this is all the things we should do. And we've done very little. So, you know, this is part of this lar a larger system and let's not forget that. I mean, yeah. even though I don't have the scientific numbers, I have no doubt. I mean, that's something I wanted to bring up is that the platform of people from equal education is essentially like vividly aware that all of these systems are specifically anti like, like are racist, mm -hmm. anti black, yep. um, and anti Semitic, and other things, anti people of color, you know, and like the discrimination is becoming more and more visible in my lifetime, especially like culminating with like a Trump presidency. And even in the Biden presidency, we also see that like, a more um, uh, what is, uh, a, a facade that is still re rejecting things, but not out of hand. And so we're aware that these systems are in place in a way that were designed specifically, and then we're using both the platform of people's mutual education and Tim Tan phone to try to unmake them because they we understand that they exist in that way. So I just wanted to raise that up and you kind of concluded with that. And as parents kind of called the public into play, and that's again, the design of these platforms is to reach a public because that's the struggle for me and, and in my work is that these things are not just happening. They're all conscious decisions and they were yep. based on clear and identifiable yep. problematic platforms yep. And as you, um, Ellen um, mentioned, or um, that you mentioned about the kind of um, situation with Ellen is that it, there is an intentional choice not to engage it. And so I wanted to, for the archive of Tintan Phone, to ask parents because I know a little bit about Lou's experience of what it really means. So even that you've served your time, and for me as the process was like, I see how it continues to influence a life after and so you don't and that's like a part of the work that occurs within ten phone is that the incarceration never ends actually right and so uh, i'm curious if there is not something worth sharing so people can hear what it really means that's like well isn't it over already right. Right. um so what does that mean for you so so first of all it's never over right mm -hmm. even for me if if she was to rectify it and do what's right and put me back in i would still have another set of fights so in this first happened and Elisa reached out to me she's like look you gotta get your post-conviction in right so when we had built another relationship on some other stuff she was on me and then I was 
if there was high levels of anxiety and stress for me, right? And I would even tell my wife, like, I need help. This is simple paperwork, right? She sent me the paperwork <laughs> and like, how to do it, Terrence? When to do it, Terrence? Where you go from here? How are we gonna help you? Call me if you need me. And I had high levels of anxiety, mm -hmm. right? Because what it felt like is I was starting that process again, and I was going to be disappointed. And eventually, the Supreme Court didn't disappoint, but I was still disappointed, yeah. right? And I mean, so, I spoke to both of you about that. Right, yeah. right. Just like when really does it hard. end? And so, um, when I look at that, no, it's, it it would never end, right? Because I was still there are so many injustices, especially in the criminal justice system, right? We will continue to fight, and I'll mm -hmm. continue to be a part of that. Uh, but no, I mean, listen. I lost 13 years, right? I came home. I left. My daughter was two. I came back to be 15, right? I mean, you're talking about a young lady. I'm hella not equipped to be a father to a teenage girl, okay? They still kicking my tail. No one is. Right. I'm not, I'm not ready for this, right? I'm still getting my butt kicked today. Actually, I got my butt kicked today by three of them. So um, I didn't have the chance to grow, right? And so, right. It does, you know, I don't have to strike the box after this. And that's important because I can't, my family is always at a disadvantage. No matter how much money I make, when we go for our home, I have to strike a box. Mm -hmm. And what that box means is they automatically can make a decision about whether I'm trustworthy enough not to pay the rent, you know, but whether or not I'm welcome in certain communities. And mm -hmm. let's be honest about that. Certain communities welcome my felony because I'm allowed to exist there. But most communities that are safe with good school districts, pretty much white communities, I'm not allowed. And that's how they continue to keep me out. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about gentrification of Portland, I can't go back in those communities and live as everybody say they're trying to get me back into those communities. Right. That felony doesn't allow me back into those communities because they would automatically say, well, um, you're a violent criminal. I can't risk. This is my community, though. Mm -hmm. This was our community before white people decide that they liked it to harm Right. Mm -hmm. And so this this keeping me from at least dealing with the felony aspect doesn't even allow me back into the community that was taken from me. It doesn't even allow me to affect that community or to empower people like myself to get back into that community. When I'm, I'm not allowed, I mean, real estate builds wealth, right? I'm not allowed back into a community that's growing, um, real estate numbers are growing high, some of the highest in the nation. So it's a wealth issue, right? I'm, allowed to tap into the wealth of real estate because of that. Um, even when you talk about loans, right? Whether it's bank or private, they, I'm a felon, right? And all that plays a part in how they deal with me and how they deal with my family, right? My children and let me have just say again, plan. this is exactly what was planned. Right. It worked perfectly. I mean, it's this <laughs> and so many other parts right. of our criminal justice system. This is what, this was intended, right? right? And all over this country, that's true. I mean, it's not just this non-unanimous jury issue. It's like people have convictions. It stays with them forever. Right. You, you're always right. in prison. And like, let's not forget that you spent 13 years in, a, in prison, which right. is a trauma. Right, right, right. Right? I mean, right. it's, yeah. Right. It's crazy. Because work, even jobs, right? I can't, I can't get on. I'm an electrician by trade. I can't go to some of the best prevailing wages jobs if they're um, federally funded or an intel in certain areas, right? No matter how high my skill set is, right. that felony stops me from those things too. So all the things that are supposed to be amazing about Portland, I am actually continue not allowed access to those things because I will, again, I was wrong in the criminal justice system. And so, you know, and then I did my time, right? Yeah, so if you talk about, what about the victim? I'm done. 
Yeah. Right. So, so if if I am guilty, then my victim have has gotten what was right and due as yeah. far as time goes, right. and I'm home no matter what. They didn't give. Listen, they gave me the amount of ma- maximum amount of time. She didn't show any leniency towards me. She was not kind and patient towards me. Right. She didn't see a 19 fresh on 20 year old kid who made a mistake. Right. She just seen a black kid that's allowed a lot her to her to roast. So when you talk about how deep it is, those are things that if if she had to talk to me, she would have to answer for. Right. right. And and at this stage, it's not important. Just do what you can do. You can't mm-hmm. go back and give me my time, but you right. can give me and my family a step, uh, the ability to just move on in a in a reasonably normal fashion. So you have and listen, I'm not the worst, right? I'm not, I've really been blessed and I I still came home with a trade. I still work, I still been able to provide a decent life for my family. Imagine people who can't even do that. Right. Imagine individuals that don't have a wife supporting them, that don't have family because that conviction lost them everything. And that's not, a lot. Right. Okay. So a lot of people that didn't come home after those many years with family. Some people came home and didn't have family, right? I lost two cousins in my age group while I was incarcerated, that I was never allowed to grow with and then mourn them in a proper way. So the totality of my life is affected. And again, the people have the ability, the lawmakers have the ability, and especially Judge Rosenblum has the ability to rectify this. And I just don't buy into the overwhelming of the courts, right? That, you know, when, when, when we as a community decide that doesn't matter, then the lawmakers will find a way to fix it, right? And They'll the find a way is, to process it. The county that has the most cases is Multnomah. Right. I mean, I have it all broken down. And some counties have like two cases. Right. I mean, most of them just have a few. And then Multnomah has the most. And I have no doubt that our new yeah. um, district attorney Absolutely. can and will handle this. And I don't think he's ever said he couldn't either. No. Yeah. You know, so I, know. I feel Progressive. like, right. yeah, yeah, but even not like right. it's his job. He'll yeah. do it. He'll They'll do find it. a way. You know what I mean? It's like, that's your job. Do it. You know, sometimes I have a ton of work and I have to work 20 hours a day for months and months. <laughs> right. And I do. And that's just it. You know, um, they get paid really well in the DA's offices. And if this is thrown on them, then they'll they'll figure it out. And again, he's an elected official. Yes, exactly. It's his job. So I don't, I'm not exactly. sympathetic for people to have to do yeah. their job. I have to go to work right. nine, 10 hours a day and do my job. Exactly. And it's part of your job, that's that. all it would be. Right, you pay taxes so they can do their job. Right. And so we don't have to, we don't, yeah. the system is not real. And my honestly, life is she's right. complaining about it, but I haven't heard from One any DA. DAs. Especially not ours. Yeah, but also in the other it. places, I don't think they, I think they're staying out of this one because, you know, and when we were at a place where we might have had a, before Ramos was taken up by the Supreme Court, we had um, the DA Association was on board for a referral um, and we're very pro getting rid of this, so. Thank you. Uh, yeah. I just wanted to add a few things. There's trauma that comes with this experience, the dividends, like all the stuff Terrence is talking about, the effects that those things can have on relationships, on your life in general. Um, but I think, when we talked about just like the number of people that have been lost in the system that we'll never know about, like we can't go back. I mean, Oregon has been talking about measure 11 and repealing measure 11 for the longest time. This is a thing that was used specifically to intimidate people into taking deals. It's mandatory minimum sentences, giving no good time for people who have maybe have been uh, charged with a first offense or a 10th offense, but it's done a lot of damage. So we can't do that. Right. We can't affect that. The people who win now, right? The people, if if we take action as Oregonians and we influence change here, 
none, nobody wins. Right. Right. Nobody wins. You lose less. Right. It's like everybody loses less. This is not going to be a paycheck. It's not like everybody's automatically getting some money for being inside. It doesn't happen that way. It's not what's happening. We're talking about like restoring people to an opportunity for justice, whether that's That's a fair trial or whether it's because they've done 13 years, 12 years or 20 years. And it's time to say, live your life. Like, I get it that we can be scared sometimes. Like, society can be scared, but we need to be a little bit bigger than fear right now. So, um, I know, Michael, you had something. In this episode, we talk about the issue of non-unanimous jury decision in Portland, Oregon, for another 20 minutes. Make sure to catch the end of this episode on Spotify, Apple, or the TinCanPhonePodcast.com. Thanks for listening.